Section 8 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. Horace Walpole. Part 2. It is generally assumed that in speaking lightly of himself, Walpole was merely posturing. To me, it seems that he was sincere enough. He had a sense of greatness in literature, as is shown by his reverence of Shakespeare, and he was too much of a realist not to see that his own writings at their best were trifles beside the monuments of the poets. He felt that he was doing little things in a little age. He was diffident both for his times and for himself. So difficult do some writers find it to believe that there was any deep genuineness in him that they ask us to regard even his enthusiasm for great literature as a pretense. They do not realise that the secret of his attraction for us is that he was an enthusiast disguised as an eighteenth-century man of fashion. His airs and graces were not the result of languor, but of his pleasure in wearing a mask. He was quick, responsive, excitable, and only withdrew into the similitude of a china figure, as Diogenes into his tub, through philosophy. The truth is, the only dandies who are tolerable are those whose dandyism is a cloak of reserve. Our interesting character is largely an interesting contradictions of this kind. The bow capable of breaking into excitement awakes our curiosity, as does the conqueror stooping to a humane action, the Puritan caught in the net of the senses, or the pacifist in a rage of violence. The average man, whom one knows superficially, is a formula, or seems to live the life of a formula. That is why we find him dull. The characters who interest us in history and literature, on the other hand, are perpetually giving the lie to the formulae we invent and are bound to invent for them. They give us pleasure, not by confirming us, but by surprising us. It seems to me absurd, then, to regard Walpole's air of indifference as the only real thing about him, and to question his raptures. From his first travels among the Alps with Gray down to his senile letters to Hannah More about the French Revolution, we see him as a man almost hysterical in the intensity of his sensations, whether of joy or of horror. He lived for his sensations like an aesthete. He wrote of himself as, I who am as constant at a fire as George Selwyn at an execution. If he cared for the crownings of kings and such occasions, it was because he took a childish delight in the fireworks and illuminations. He had the keen spirit of a masquerader. Masquerades, he declared, were one of my ancient passions and we find him as an elderly man dressing out a thousand young Conways and Chumleys for an entertainment of the kind, and going with more pleasure to see them pleased than when I formerly delighted in that diversion myself. He was equally an enthusiast in his hobbies and his tastes. He rejoiced to get back in May to Strawberry Hill, where my two passions, lilacs and nightingales, are in bloom. He could not have made his collections or built his battlements in a mood of indifference. In his love of medieval ruins he showed himself a goth-intoxicated man. As for Strawberry Hill itself, the result may have been a ridiculous mouse, 
but it took a mountain of enthusiasm to produce it walpole's own description of his house and its surroundings has an exquisite charm that almost makes one love the place as he did it is a little plaything house he told conway that i got out of mrs chenevix's shop and is the prettiest bauble you ever saw it is set in enamelled meadows with filigree hedges a small euphrates through the pieces rolled and little finches wave their wings in gold he goes on to decorate the theme with comic and fanciful properties two delightful roads that you would call dusty supply me continually with coaches and chaises barges as solemn as barons of the exchequer move under my window richmond hill and ham walks bound my prospect but thank god the thames is between me and the duchess of queensbury dowagers as plenty as flounders inhabit all around and pope's ghost is just now skimming under my window by a most poetical moonlight i have about land enough to keep such a farm as noah's when he set up in the ark with a pair of each kind it is in the spirit of a child throwing its whole imagination into playing with a noah's ark that he describes his queer house it is in this spirit that he sees the fields around the house speckled with cows horses and sheep the very phrase suggests toy animals walpole himself declared at the age of seventy-three my best wisdom has consisted in forming a baby house full of playthings for my second childhood that explains why one almost loves the creature macaulay has severely censured him for devoting himself to the collection of knick-knacks such as king william the third's spurs and it is apparently impossible to defend walpole as a collector to be taken seriously walpole however collected things in a mood of fantasy as much as of connoisseurship he did not take himself quite seriously it was fancy not connoisseurship that made him hang up magna charta beside his bed and opposite it the warrant for the execution of king charles i on which he had written major charter who can question the fantastic quality of the mind that wrote to conway remember neither lady salisbury nor you nor mrs damer have seen my new divine closet nor the billiard sticks with which the countess of pembroke and arcadia used to play with her brother sir philip and ended i never did see cotchell and i'm sorry is not the old wardrobe there still there was one from the time of cain but adam's breeches and eve's under petticoat were eaten by a goat in the ark good night he laughed over the knick-knacks he collected for himself and his friends as to snuff-boxes and toothpick-cases he wrote to the countess of ossory from paris in seventeen seventy one the vintage has entirely failed this year everything that he turned his mind to in strawberry hill he regarded in the same spirit of comic delight he stood outside himself like a spectator and nothing gave him more pleasure than to figure himself as a master of the ceremonies among the bantams and the squirrels and the goldfish in one of his letters he describes himself and bentley fishing in the pond for goldfish with nothing but a pail and a basin and a tea-strainer which i persuade my neighbours is the chinese method this was in order to capture some of the fish for bentley who carried a dozen to town t'other day in a decanter walpole is similarly amused by the spectacle of himself as a planter and gardener i have made great progress he boasts and talk very learnedly with the nursery men 
except that now and then a lettuce runs to seed overturns all my botany and i have more than once taken it for a curious west indian flowering shrub then the deliberation with which trees grow is extremely inconvenient to my natural impatience he goes on enviously to imagine the discovery by posterity of a means of transplanting oaks of a hundred and fifty years as easily as tulip bulbs this leads him to enlarge upon the wonders that the horace walpole of posterity will be able to possess when the miraculous discoveries have been made then the delightfulness of having whole groves of hummingbirds catney tigers taught to fetch and carry pocket spying glasses to see all that is doing in china and a thousand other toys which we now look upon as impracticable and which pert posterity would laugh in our face for staring at among the various creatures with which he loved to surround himself it is impossible to forget either the little black spaniel tony that the wolf carried off near a wood in the alps during his first travels or the more imperious little dog tonton which he has constantly to prevent from biting people at madame du defend's but which with madame du defend herself grows the greater favourite the more people he devours t'other night writes walpole to whom madame du defend afterwards bequeathed the dog in her will he flew at lady barrymore's face and i thought would have torn her eye out but it ended in biting her finger she was terrified she fell into tears madame du defend who has too much parts not to see everything in its true light perceiving that she had not beaten tonton half enough immediately told us a story of a lady whose dog having bitten a piece out of a gentleman's leg the tender dame in a great fright cried out won't it make him sick in the most attractive accounts we possess of walpole in his old age we see him seated at the breakfast-table drinking tea out of most rare and precious ancient porcelain of japan and sharing the loaf and butter with tonton now grown almost too fat to move and spread on a sofa beside him and afterwards going to the window with a basin of bread and milk to throw to the squirrels in the garden many people would be willing to admit however that walpole was an excitable creature where small things were concerned a parakeet or the prospect of being able to print original letters of ninon de l'enclos at strawberry or the discovery of a poem by the brother of anne boleyn or ranelagh where the floor is all of beaten princes what is not generally realised is that he was also a high-strung and eager spectator of the greater things i have already spoken of his enthusiasm for wild nature as shown in his letters from the alps it is true he grew weary of them such uncouth rocks he wrote and such uncomely inhabitants i am as surfeited with mountains and inns as if i had eat them he groaned in a later letter but the enthusiasm was at least as genuine as the fatigue his tergiversation of mood proves only that there were two walpoles not that the walpole of the romantic enthusiasms was insincere he was a devotee of romance but it was romance under the control of the comic spirit he was always amused to have romance brought down to reality as when writing of mary queen of scots he said i believe i have told you that in a very old trial of her which i bought for lord oxford's collection it is said that she was a large lame woman take sentiments out of their pantoufles and reduce them to the infirmities of mortality what a falling off there is but see him in the picture gallery in his father's old house at houghton after an absence of sixteen years and the romantic mood is uppermost 
in one respect he writes speaking of the pictures i am very young i cannot satiate myself with looking and he adds not a picture here but calls a history not one but i remember in downing street or chelsea where queens and crowds admired them and if he could not satiate himself with looking at the italian and flemish masters he similarly preserved the heat of youth in his enthusiasm for shakespeare when he wrote during his dispute with voltaire on the point i think over all the great authors of the greeks romans italians french and english and i know no other languages i set shakespeare first and alone and then begin anew one is astonished to find that he was contemptuous of montaigne what signifies what a man thought he wrote who never thought of anything but himself and what signifies what a man did who never did anything this sentence might have served as a condemnation of walpole himself and indeed he meant it so walpole however was an egoist of an opposite kind to montaigne walpole lived for his eyes and saw the world as a mask of bright and amusing creatures montaigne studied the map of himself rather than the map of his neighbour's vanities walpole was a social being and not finally self-centred his chief purpose in life was not to know himself but to give pleasure to his friends if he was bored by montaigne it was because he had little introspective curiosity like montaigne himself however he was much the servant of whim in his literary tastes that he was no sceptic but a disciple as regards shakespeare and milton and pope and gray suggests on the other hand how foolish it is to regard him as being critically a fashionable trifler End of section eight.